we are looking at Ephesians chapter 3 as we work our way through this amazing letter of encouragement. It's one of Paul's rare letters where he doesn't write to correct false theology or teaching. He doesn't write to confront people or to call them to account. He actually writes to encourage them. So if you need some encouragement today, read Ephesians. It's a very encouraging letter. And you can sense it in the way that Paul writes. He simply gets carried away uh, in worship and praise, even as he's trying to write theology. That should be the way of it, right? That our theology shouldn't be uh, dry. When I went to seminary, I had Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Don't read that. It's super, super dry. Um, read Ephesians instead, because Paul does this wonderful thing where he takes these great cosmic truths of the gospel, and he gets excited about them. He gets thrilled about them, and he just bursts into prayer and praise as he goes through. And we see that again in Ephesians. Um, even as Heather was reading, you saw the, the first line opened, then there's dot, dot, dot. Why? Because he gets distracted. Even as he's trying to uh, articulate this letter to the Ephesians, he's so overwhelmed with the grace of God. And I, I'd love to be like that. And sometimes I get a glimpse of that, right? And maybe you do too. Just so overwhelmed with the grace of God that we burst into spontaneous praise. And that's what's happening with Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. A big part of this letter, though, is about identity, and that's our focus, and that's the lens that we're looking through in order to access the rest of this letter. And I think we all struggle at times with questions of identity. This isn't just something for our teenagers to work through, although that happens. It's a natural part of growing up. I see sometimes as some of our teens graduate from high school, and they've been told a lie. They've been told, the world is your oyster. Whatever you put your mind to, you'll be able to accomplish. And I've said this before, that is a lie. And they quickly find that out, that their world gets narrower and narrower because of opportunities and abilities and usually money. But there's, there's something that constrains us and we begin to say, okay, well, what is my identity? But it's not just a teenage phenomenon. We face it at different times in our lives, whether it's through crisis Perhaps we lose a job, or we lose a spouse, or we lose our health, or we just feel lost in general. And we begin to ask these deeper questions. Who am I, and why do I matter? Thankfully, the gospel provides answers at a deeper level to those questions than I think we realize. And that's what we want to lean into as we look through this, that Paul shows us that the good news of Jesus is really all about identity. First of all, he tells us that our identity has a particular position. It has a location, and that location is in Christ. So regardless of what we're struggling with in the world, we do so, if we're a follower of Jesus, from a location in Christ. Location, 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 right? And as we look out from our location, the view of the world changes if we look at our world through the position of being in Christ. But Paul also goes on to say in chapter 2 that our identity also has to do with our purpose in the world. That our purpose is this. We are made to do good. When we do good, 
we have this sense that we're doing something that's right because we are. We're meant to do good. And Paul even says, we're meant to do the good in the world that God has planned for in advance for us to do. And so God has planned good things for us. And when we do those good things, like community building and the care of creation and communion with God, we sense our true identity in Christ. So position and purpose. But now in chapter 3, Paul shares some of his personal images of identity. And I find this interesting, and so I want to share it with you this morning and see if we can relate to some of the phrases, some of the the, um, images that Paul uses to express his identity in Christ. Um, A commentator once said, if you want to get to know Jesus, get to know Paul. And strangely enough, that's not a very popular saying among uh, some churches and theologians and schools of thought today, because sometimes Paul gets a bad reputation. We prefer to read the Gospels, but when we turn to the letters, sometimes Paul is accused of either being confusing, or maybe he's accused of being a misogynist. He's anti-woman, and yet Paul's the one that calls so many women his co-workers in Christ in the Gospel. He even calls one one woman an apostle, and he lends that phrase to them as well. Or sometimes it's accused that that Paul supported slavery. And if you feel that way, if you've heard that, just read the letter to Philemon, and you understand something of Paul's heart when it comes to that. Or sometimes we, we get the impression that Paul was unkind because sometimes he told the truth in such a way that it seems harsh and confrontational, Right? And if you feel that about Paul, just read 1 Corinthians 13. We get the greatest love poem in all of history from Paul. And so I think we have to be careful uh, as we think about Paul's image. Um, And maybe we can learn something of Jesus from Paul. The reality is this. Paul, when he identified as Saul, was a powerful and dangerous and cruel man. But after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, everything changed. Great Saul became little Paul in that sense. He adopted a different identity. It's an identity he had from birth, a name that he had from birth. But this name Paul meant little. And Paul, small Paul, is who we know today. And that's very, very important. So Daryl Johnson, a pastor and commentator, says this. If you want to know what grace does in a human life, get to know Paul. So that's my encouragement. Yes, read the Gospels, and I love the Gospels, uh, but also read Paul because we get to see the transformation that occurs in a human life as Paul goes from mean Saul to small Paul, right? And so we get that as we go through this. So after his encounter with Jesus, Paul saw his identity in a whole new light. He was found in Christ, and he's made for a purpose, and that purpose was to do what? To do good, right? What does that look like for Paul? Well, in chapter 3, he uses a number of titles to express this identity, and I'm just going to share three and see if we can identify with them. First of all, he calls himself, he identifies as a prisoner of the Lord. That's interesting, I think. Like He was a prisoner for real. Like he was in a prison in Rome. And so that obviously was part of his identity. But what does it mean to be a prisoner of the Lord? 
It seems kind of counterintuitive. Did God sort of take him captive and is holding him in chains? That seems opposite of the gospel. So what does Paul mean that he is a prisoner of the Lord? Well, we use this kind of terminology even today, and I'm going to give an illustration to prove it. You ready? Over 30 years ago, I was attending church at White Rock Baptist Church, and I happened to see a young lady in the pew. Her name was Christine. Still is Christine. She's sitting right there. And I did not hear a word that the pastor was preaching that day. Why? Because I was captivated by Christine. Isn't that a nice thing? She's like, stop doing that. It's a nice thing to say. Captivated. We use that terminology. You know, we are captivated by someone. Or, as it happens in this congregation, when people are listening to the sermon, they're captivated. You are a captive audience, right? When I say you're a captive audience, it doesn't mean that we've chained the doors and we've forced you to sit down and pay attention. It means that something has appealed to us and we're paying attention, mostly. I can see you when you're taking power naps. Um, so we use this word too, and, and Paul does, in this sense, count himself, identify as a prisoner of Jesus, not because God has put chains around him, quite the opposite, but because he is captivated by Jesus. He's captivated by Jesus. I love that idea. I am too, to be honest. I'm captivated by Jesus. I sometimes get lost when I'm reading through the Old Testament and I wonder about some things and I'm a little bit confused. And even in Paul's writings, Peter even said that Paul's writings were actually sometimes confusing and hard to understand. But I am captivated by Jesus. I hope you are too. Does Jesus have our hearts? Are we prisoners of the Lord in that sense? Another way to say it is this. Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? That's how Paul identified. That's what it meant to be in Christ for him. He was a prisoner of the Lord, captivated by Christ. Okay, a second word he uses in verse 2 now. He says, not only is he a prisoner, that's verse 1, but in verse 2 he says, I am also a steward. It'll be different in different translations, but I am a steward. What does that mean? Well, a steward is someone who's responsible to take care of someone else's property. That's probably the simplest uh, understanding of what a steward does. A steward takes care of something that doesn't belong to them. Paul says he is a steward of the mystery of of God. It doesn't belong to him. This knowledge, this understanding doesn't belong to him, but he's called to be responsible with it. And what is this mystery? This great mystery, this hidden thing that wasn't totally revealed in the Old Testament, even though we got glimpses of it every once in a while? Well, he spells it out for us. The mystery is this, God's plan that both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Jesus Christ. If we've been around the church for a while, we might hear that and think very little of it. But I have to tell you that we cannot understate the importance of this mystery revealed through Paul to you and me. You and I would not be here today if this mystery wasn't revealed. Because most of us, maybe 98%, maybe 99%,
have no ethnic claims to the covenant people of the Old Testament Israel. We don't. We, most part, I think, would be classified as Gentiles. We were the outsiders. And by the gospel of God's grace, this mystery revealed by Jesus at the cross and through Paul to us, we have been invited in. But not just to tag along. This is the amazing mystery. That by God's grace, we have been made to share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. We have been made to be equal in the same body and enjoy the same promises and blessings because we equally belong to Jesus. That's remarkable. Do you ever wonder why, you know, when you read the stories of Abraham and Moses, these are not, for the most part, I think, certainly not my national ethnic stories that, that we understand and know. Why, though, can we look at Abraham and Moses and Esther and all these people in the Old Testament and feel that we belong because of this? Because the mystery has been revealed and we have been made equal in the body of Christ with those who were the natural inheritors of these promises. That's amazing to us. And so our attitude toward the gospel should never be that we, especially Western we, that we own it or control it or that we're the ones that are simply the caretakers of it. Instead, our response to the gospel should be pure gratitude that we have been included. And that's what helps us to include others, to understand that others should be included as well. So Paul was a very good steward, that's part of his identity. He's a steward of this mystery, and I would say he did it well because we're sitting here today as a testimony to his good stewardship with what God had given him. Well, here's my question. What has God entrusted to you? It doesn't belong to you. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it's a gift. Maybe it's an ability. Maybe it's some knowledge that you have. And God is saying, that's not yours. It doesn't really belong to you. I've entrusted it to you. What are you doing with it? Are we being good stewards of whether it's the time, talent, and treasure, whatever it is that God has given to us? That's why I loved having Mackenzie up here today. Uh, God has given Mackenzie a unique opportunity that's not available to 99% of the people in this room, just to be honest, right? It's not available to me. And Mackenzie and Zach and others are being good stewards. They're being responsible with the gift, the opportunity that God has given them. And that's what Paul models for us. Do we identify as stewards of something that isn't ours? Okay, the third thing that we look at when we think of Paul and how he expresses identity, not only as a prisoner and a steward, but also as a minister, now, that word is loaded. We think of reverence and titles and depending on what church background. But the word just means servant, right? That's what a minister is. So Paul sees himself not only as a prisoner and a steward, but as a servant of this gospel. He is a servant. Who does he serve? Well, first of all, he serves God. That's ultimately. But also, he says that his suffering serves the Gentiles serves the church, that his sacrifice is serving others. 
My brother Alan, who's uh, 14 years older than me and was a pastor, I remember meeting with him one time when I was really struggling and early in my pastoral ministry uh, to know just just what to do with people I wasn't getting along with. And this isn't to say that I've totally learned this lesson, uh, but he said to me, you need to ask the question, how can I serve them? That wasn't on my mind. My question was, how can I win this argument? How can I justify my own actions? And I think we still ask those questions when we enter into conflict with one another. But this is so fascinating to me when my brother said, how do we serve another person? How do we identify as a servant? Now, that's not the same as how do I become a floor mat, right? That people just walk over. That's not what Paul was. Sometimes in serving people, he told them the truth in love. And sometimes that truth was very direct, right? And so Paul served people in different ways, but he identified as someone who was a servant, servant of God, but also a servant of God to the Gentiles. Who are we being called to serve today? Maybe it's our children. Maybe it's our spouse. You ever ask that question? How can I serve my spouse today in this good sense? How can I identify as a servant in my own household? Don't nudge your spouse and say, hey, that message is for you. That's not what this is all about. How do we serve? Paul was willing to suffer just as Jesus suffered for us. What are we willing to sacrifice today in order to serve others. So this is how Paul is working out his identity. This is what it looks like to be in Christ and to have the purpose of doing good. Paul then identifies as a prisoner, as a steward, as a minister. Well, what is the final response to all this? Final response, as we see at the end of the passage, is a prayer. Paul just bursts into prayer, doesn't he? Prayer and praise is at the end of this whole passage. Paul's response to his new identity, to his opportunity to be a caretaker of this gospel, he says, when I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray. That's an unusual phrase, because the normal posture for prayer for a Jewish man would be to stand with arms lifted and to pray. But Paul is prost prostrate? Po prostate is the gland. Prostrate. <laughs> I get those two confused. And so he's falling down on his knees in prayer. And so this is a prayer of supplication. He's asking for something. So his response to his new identity is to pray something for other people. It's not to make him feel great. It's actually to pray for other people. And he prays for you and me. And he prays for two things. First of all is this, that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. That's the prayer. That's my prayer for you. That's maybe our prayer for one another, that Christ would make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. I know that each and every one of us have struggles in this world, in our families, in our jobs, in, in our health, all those kind of things. And we can pray about those specifically. But Paul goes deeper in his prayer and he says, no matter what situation you're facing, I pray that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Jesus, in a sense, has already moved in. But there's a vast difference between moving in and making yourself feel at home, right? We moved into our place now almost 10 years ago. 
here in Calgary. And when we moved in, it was very obvious that it was still locked in the 80s. It was built in 1980 and not much has changed. There was a lot of mirrors on the walls. There was a lot of gold colored carpets. Um, there was a lot of blah beige everywhere that you looked around. It was just kind of one of those 80s uh, mass produced kind of homes. So over the last 10 years, slowly bit by bit, what have we been doing? We've been making it our own, painting here, replacing the flooring here, redoing the fireplace, right? And then this Christmas, we, we hung some artwork that probably wouldn't make sense to most people, but it makes sense to us, and we love it. And we look around and we go, okay, now I feel at home because I can see myself in this place. That's a, a, maybe a poor illustration of what Paul is praying for here. Yes, Jesus has moved in. But does Jesus see himself in your inner life? Is Jesus at home in your heart? That's what Paul is praying. And the second part of the prayer is this, that you may experience the love of Christ. Not only that Jesus will feel right at home in your life, but that you would experience the love of Christ. He even admits it's really too much to fully understand. So rather than just trying to wrap our mind around it, I pray that you just experience it, to experience love. That's a big part of our search for identity, isn't it? To know, are we loved? And so that's what we find, that Paul's prayer is that you would experience love. Because following Jesus isn't simply an act of the will. We don't wake up in the morning and say, I am so determined I'm going to follow Jesus today better than yesterday. There is the will involved. But more than that, it's an experience of the heart. And that's what Paul is after. Uh, George Whitfield, um, he was a great theologian and preacher during the Great Awakening. And it, said, it was said of him that he often found that when he prayed at night, he began to experience God's love so powerfully that he couldn't get to sleep he had to ask God to stop because he had to get some rest. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I can't say I have. Other things keep me awake at night. Uh, but that was George Whitfield. Blaise Pascal, a physicist, mathematician, when he died, apparently they found, sewed into the lining of his coat, a diary entry of an experience that happened for two hours in 1654 from 10.30 to 12.30 one night, very specific in his diary. He experienced the love of God as a fire, and he never forgot it. He sewed the record of that event into the lining of his coat so that it would always be near his heart. Paul's prayer is this, that we will grasp, really grasp, the unlimited dimensions of Christ's love for us. It might not be as dramatic as those two examples I just gave you, uh, but Paul wants it to be real. Have you experienced the love of God? That is something that is true and will help us with our identity. And just in case we think that this kind of experience is impossible, Paul prays this. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might even ask or think. This is only possible because it's possible through Christ. Okay, well, the secret to know our identity in Christ is to have this experience of his love. That's the grace that transformed Paul's heart, that turned him from great Saul to little Paul, 
so that the gospel might be shared. Paul was a prisoner of Jesus so that he could be truly free. He was a steward of the mystery and had a sacred responsibility to share it. And he was a minister of the gospel with a desire to serve others just as he served God. So, has Jesus captivated our hearts? Has he captured our attention? What responsibilities has he entrusted to you and me? How are we stewards of that? And how can we serve God today by serving someone else? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your servant, Paul. We pray that as we look at his life, just as he imitated your son, that we might imitate him and therefore know something of what it means to follow Jesus. Thank you so much that we are found in him if we are believers today. And we pray that we might have the same kind of joy in serving you as your servant Paul did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.